The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. So we've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today, the next passage we come to is Genesis 25, 1 through 34. So I'll be reading a section of verses from the passage. And it says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokish, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Letishim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanok, Abida, and Eldiah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave him gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel of Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to his, be his wife. And Isaac prays to, prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled, struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. May God bless the reading of his word.
Let's pray this morning. Father, we find it written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So help us to view your word uh, that way this morning, Uh, not merely as an interesting subject for study or even as a helpful resource for various situations, but as our very life. May we experience it as that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A well-known theologian named A.W. Tozer uh, once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And as Tozer goes on to explain, the reason our view of God is so important is because it affects every aspect of our lives. We ultimately live out who we believe God to be. Our beliefs about God are kind of like our spiritual DNA. Just as our bodies are a manifestation of our physical DNA, our lives are a manifestation of our beliefs about God. Like we're constantly living out our view of God. For example, the level of anxiety that we have when we're going through a tumultuous time speaks volumes about what we really believe about God's sovereignty and goodness and wisdom. The amount of time we spend in prayer speaks volumes about what we believe about God's power and faithfulness. The degree to which we love others says a lot about what we really believe about God's love for us. Our willingness to forgive others reveals what we Believe about God's heart of forgiveness toward us. The degree to which which we walk in holiness reveals what we really believe about God's holiness. So even if we're not consciously thinking about God all the time, we're nevertheless still living out our view of him every moment of every day. Our view of God defines the way we live. So that means if we want to grow spiritually, that begins with, well, enlarging our view of God and and deepening our knowledge of him. You know, imagine planting an oak tree in a very small container, like maybe something the size of a yogurt cup. How big do you think that oak tree is going to grow? Not very big at all, right? Because the yogurt cup is going to limit its growth pretty severely. You know, that tree will grow as much as it can, but will be hindered from growing any larger because of the small space in which its roots are confined. Try as it might, it'll never be able to outgrow that yogurt cup. And in a similar way, you and I will never be able to outgrow our view of God. If we have a small view of God and a very surface level 
knowledge of him, then we'll never be able to grow beyond that. So if we do want to grow spiritually, it's critical that we pursue a deeper and richer and more biblical view of God. Just about everything else about us and our spiritual welfare rises and falls based on that. In the passage we come to this morning in our our journey uh, through the book of Genesis brings us face to face with an aspect of God's character that many people have found difficult and provocative and about which many Christians, even probably many in this room today, might not be sure what to think at first. And yet it's not something we're going to shy away from in our examination of Genesis 25 because God's revealed it to us for a reason. It makes a very important contribution to our view of God and therefore to the way we live our lives. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 25, we're told that after Abraham's first wife, Sarah, dies, Abraham marries another woman named Keturah and has six additional sons with her. However, uh, verse 5 tells us that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. He then sends his other sons away to live elsewhere, uh, just as he had previously sent Ishmael away, so that there wouldn't be any competition or conflict between those sons and his son Isaac. And the reason for that, as we've seen in, uh, repeatedly in Genesis, is that Isaac's the one that God had chosen to be the recipient and the conduit of his special covenant blessings. Even though Abraham had numerous other children, God chose Isaac as the one he'd uniquely favor and through whom he'd fulfill his promises to Abraham. Specifically, the promise of becoming a great nation, number one, and then possessing the land of Canaan, number two, And then number three, being the one through whom blessing would one day flow to all the families of the earth. So those promises are stated first in Genesis chapter 12 and then repeated numerous times throughout the subsequent chapters. And they'd all be fulfilled not through Ishmael or any of Abraham's other children, but through Isaac. He's the one God had chosen. Yet as we press onward in Genesis 25, we see that God's sovereign choice doesn't stop there. It continues with his choice not only of Abraham's son Isaac, but also of Isaac's son Jacob. After recording Abraham's death at the ripe old age of 175, the passage tells us in verses 21 through 26, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. 
So when Rebecca inquires of the Lord about why this struggle is happening within her womb, she's told in verse 23 that two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. We then learn that that older child is named Esau and the younger one is Jacob. So contrary to the nearly universal cultural practice in ancient times in which the firstborn son was favored above all the rest, God says things are going to be different this time. Instead of the older son Esau being favored above Jacob, Jacob is actually going to be favored above Esau. And that's actually the main idea of this entire passage. God sovereignly chooses Jacob over Esau as the one whom he'll uniquely favor. Again, God sovereignly chooses Jacob over Esau as the one whom he'll uniquely favor. And by the way, for God to be sovereign, I've been using that word, that simply means that God's in control of everything. And as we'll see, the exercise that we see here of God's sovereign will is monumentally significant. In order to see just how significant it is, we'll have to temporarily leave Genesis 25 and spend some time examining Romans 9. Because it's in Romans 9 that the Apostle Paul brings to light the full significance of God sovereignly choosing Jacob over Esau. And as we'll see, God's choice of Jacob over Esau illustrates, you know, here's how this is relevant today, it illustrates why some people are saved and others aren't. To give you an idea of the context of Romans 9, Paul writes this chapter in order to explain how it is that God's promises to Israel haven't failed, even though the majority of the Israelites aren't saved. And Paul begins his explanation by stating in verse 6 of chapter 9, But it is not as though the word of God or the promise of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not every ethnic Israelite is what we might call a true Israelite. There are a lot of people who are biologically descended from Abraham and who are ethnically a part of the Israelite nation but who aren't actually true Israelites in their hearts. You know, they don't have hearts that trust God and that want to follow God, and so that makes them not true Israelites. It'd be similar to the way we might describe someone who lives in Pittsburgh, but who doesn't really do many of the things that most people would expect a loyal Pittsburgher to do. Let's say maybe they're a huge Baltimore Ravens fan, and you know, maybe they've never set foot in a Primanti Brothers restaurant. And, you know, they just have no clue about anything about Pittsburgh's history, right? Uh, maybe a producer of steel or, or whatever. And, and so even though someone like that might technically live in Pittsburgh, I'm pretty sure that most people in Pittsburgh would say that that person is not a true Pittsburgh, right? And in a similar way, Paul's distinguishing between an ethnic Israelite and a true Israelite with the implication that only the true Israelites are legitimate recipients of God's promise. So the point uh, that Paul's making is that God hasn't broken his promise to, to Israel because 
only the true Israelites, the ones who have put their faith in Jesus, are legitimate recipients of that promise. So far, so good. But here's the provocative part. The reason many ethnic Israelites aren't true Israelites, Paul says, is ultimately because God hasn't chosen them to be a part of the true Israelites. So let that sink in. Yes, they've rejected their Messiah. Yes, they have no interest in following God. So those things make it appropriate to say that they're not true Israelites. But the ultimate reason they're not included among the true Israelites is because God hasn't chosen them to be a part of the true Israel. And Paul then illustrates this in verses 7 through 13 by going back into Israel's history and pointing out how God chose Isaac above Ishmael. Kind of sounds familiar, right? Even though both Isaac and Ishmael were, of course, biological children of Abraham, God chose Isaac above Ishmael as the recipient of his promise and as the son who would receive and experience God's redemptive blessings. Not only that, God did the same thing with Isaac's two children, Jacob and Esau. He chose one over the other, Jacob over Esau. And of course, that's where Romans 9 intersects with our main passage back in Genesis 25. God chose Jacob over Esau. In Romans 9, 12, Paul even cites our main passage. He cites Genesis 25, 23, where God tells Rebecca that the older will serve the younger. And Paul actually goes out of his way to emphasize that this choice of God wasn't based on anything good or bad in either of these men. Verse 11 states that God made his choice, quote, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election, right, his purpose in choosing might continue, not because of works, you know, like human merit, but because of him, God, who calls. So in other words, God's choice was made on the basis of nothing but his own sovereign will. So it's not like God you know, looked down from heaven and saw that you know, Jacob was a little more deserving of salvation than Esau was. No, God chose Jacob over Esau before either of them was even born. And on the basis of nothing but his own sovereign will. And if you're sitting there right now thinking that that's a little hard to swallow, I think you're right. But that's what Paul says here. And as we'll see, he's going to say it even more clearly in the subsequent verses. Like in verses 14 and 15. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, God has the right to choose those to whom he'll extend mercy. It's his decision to make. You know, a lot of times I think we, some, we imagine that because God's shown mercy to some, that he's somehow obligated to show mercy to all. And yet that's just not the case. You might compare it to the, the president of the United States uh, deciding who, if anyone, he's going to pardon. Right? Let's say that 
a thousand convicted prisoners all write letters to the president asking for a pardon. And for the sake of illustration, let's just assume that all 1,000 are guilty of the crimes that they've been convicted of. So does the president owe a pardon to any of them? Of course not. Right? They all deserve to be in prison. They've all committed crimes. So the president doesn't have to pardon any of them. And if he does choose to pardon some but not others, then you know, he has every right to do that as well. He's not unjust for pardoning a hundred of them instead of the full thousand. And in the same way, God doesn't have to show mercy to anyone. Understand that mercy, by definition, is undeserved. God doesn't have to extend it to even a single individual on the face of this earth. So he could, just to put it bluntly, like he could send everybody to hell. And that would be a just and righteous thing. Because that is, as rebellious people, that is what we deserve. So when you think about it, the truly astonishing and provocative thing isn't that God would show mercy to some and pass over others. No, it's that he'd show mercy to anyone at all. You know, that's the question we should be asking. Like, why does God show mercy to anyone? So the decision of whether to extend or withhold mercy is God's decision. As he says in verse 15, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Then Paul continues in verses 16 through 18. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, you know, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So here again, God has the right to show mercy selectively on whomever he wills, as verse 18 states. God sovereignly chooses those whom he'll save. Moving on to verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? Hmm. So let's look at this objection that Paul anticipates here. When I read this objection, it confirms uh, for me that we've been interpreting things correctly so far. Think about it. If, if your interpretation of verses 6 through 18 doesn't naturally raise the potential objection of verse 19, then you're not interpreting things correctly. <laughs> the, the objection raised in verse 19 should naturally follow um, from a proper understanding of the preceding verses. And I believe that interpretation of verses 6 through 18 that I've been suggesting does indeed raise the objection that Paul states in verse 19. And that objection is basically this. If God is the one who ultimately chooses who's saved and who's not, then how in the world can he still hold people responsible for not being saved? I mean, is that really fair? So that's basically what Paul's asking in verse 19. But look at his response in verses 20 and 21. 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So, wow, like that is heavy, right? Paul's basically saying, like, who do you think you are to even ask that question? Like, who are we as creatures to think that we have any right at all to act as a judge over our creator? And not only do we not have that right, but who are we to even think we have that intellectual ability? It'd be kind of like maybe my three-year-old son questioning how fair my rules for the house are. Like, his brain isn't even nearly close to being developed enough to properly evaluate the fairness of those rules. And that's the case infinitely more so with us and God. Like, who are we to presume that we can sit as judge over him? And you know, it really shouldn't surprise us that there are some things about God that are just beyond our ability to comprehend. Things that we just can't understand. Uh, You might compare it to an ant looking up at a human. You know, when an ant stands on his little anthill, and looks up at a human being, that ant can't even begin to comprehend the thoughts or the nature of the human. Right? He, he doesn't have a clue about the thoughts or nature of the human that he's looking at. And really, that's just one finite creature trying to figure out another finite creature. How much less are we as finite creatures able to comprehend the being or the ways of the infinite God. So the point Paul's making is that God's sovereign in choosing those he'll save and those he won't. Just as he chose Jacob over Esau, back in our main passage, Genesis 25, he likewise chooses some people today over others. However, and this is a very important however, That doesn't mean that people also don't make voluntary and willful decisions for which they're rightly held accountable. In the very next chapter of Romans, Paul talks about how people are called to embrace the gospel and are personally responsible for doing that. He writes in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He then says in verse 13 that everyone, you see that? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Human responsibility right there. Similarly, back in Genesis 25, we see that it's Esau's own behavior that deprives him of his birthright as the firstborn. He's the one who decides of his own volition to sell his birthright to Jacob. And for a bowl of stew, no less. So Esau has no one but himself to blame for the loss of his privilege as the firstborn. Notice how verse 34 
doesn't say that God took Israel's birthright away from him, but rather that Esau did what? Despised, like Esau despised his birthright. Yet at the same time, of course, Esau's voluntary decision was a part of God's sovereign plan. So where exactly does all of this leave us? Maybe your head is spinning right now. Like, where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with the conclusion that, number one, God sovereignly chooses people for salvation. And yet also, number two, that people make voluntary and willful decisions for which they are rightly held accountable. Both of those statements are simultaneously true. Now, I don't understand exactly how they fit together, but I believe they ultimately do fit together. Both truths are clearly taught in Scripture. By the way, not only in these these passages we've looked at, but in numerous other passages as well that I wish we had time to look at. And so, I simply believe them both. It's similar, in many ways, to the Trinity. Think about it. Every true Christian believes in the Trinity, which is the teaching that God exists in three persons, you know, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and yet that there's also only one God. So those two truths would seem to contradict each other, right? I mean, how can God be both three and one? Nobody in 2,000 years of church history has ever been able to comprehensively answer that question. And yet, we believe that both of those things are true because Scripture clearly teaches them. Right? In various places, Scripture refers to the Father, of course, as God. It refers to the Son as God. It refers to the Holy Spirit as God. And yet, it also says in other places, very clearly, that there's only one God. How do we reconcile that? We don't know, but we believe both because Scripture teaches both. We just chalk it up to the fact that God is infinitely more complex than our little ant minds can understand. And I believe uh, that we should approach the truth of God's sovereignty the same way. Rather than trying to explain the way what the Bible teaches, we should just accept it and humbly acknowledge that the ways of God are beyond our comprehension. Like, there is a way that God can determine who is and isn't saved and at the same time hold people accountable for not being saved. Maybe in heaven we'll understand that more, but for now we just believe both of those things since we see both of them taught in the Bible. And again, I know that all this is very intellectual and very abstract, um, maybe much more so than you might get on, a pre- on a, a, an ordinary Sunday, but understand also that this is incredibly significant for our lives. And uh, here's how. Very briefly, three applications of all of this, the doctrine of God's sovereignty to our lives. First, it inspires us to higher heights of worship. As we reflect on God's sovereignty in passages like Genesis 25 and Romans 9, we come face to face with a God who's wonderfully and gloriously beyond our ability to comprehend. Like We're reminded that we don't have God 
figured out. And that's a very good thing because any being that we could comprehensively understand wouldn't be worthy of being called God. (laughs) Now would he? So the fact that we can't understand all the thoughts and ways of God shouldn't hinder us from worshiping him, but should actually inspire us to worship him as a God who's truly God. You know, at the end of Romans 11, after Paul has just spent three chapters unpacking ideas related to God's sovereignty, he very appropriately closes that section of his letter with a profound expression of worship toward God. He declares in Romans 11, 33 through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. So that should be your heart and my heart after studying the passages we've studied this morning. Then a second application of all this is that it enables us to have a deeper gratitude for God's grace. You know, I remember as a kid playing different um, Mario games, and I played these games on a Super Nintendo, right? So kind of says a little bit about how long ago this was. And on most of the, the Mario games, they, they would have these secret bonus levels that you could unlock by doing different things. And that's kind of the way I see the passages we've studied this morning function. These passages and numerous others that, that we find throughout the Bible that speak about God's sovereignty should unlock new levels of gratitude toward God. Because they help us see even more clearly that being saved from our sins isn't something that we've earned for ourselves in even the slightest or most subtle way. It's not even something we've obtained through our own ability. Instead, salvation is truly a gift of God from beginning to end. He gave it to those of us who are Christians not because we had managed to make ourselves into more suitable recipients, but simply because of his own sovereign grace. You know, this, this kind of stuff takes a sledgehammer to the legs of our pride. Like it cuts pride right out from underneath of us. The fact is, dear friends, that God loved us when we were utterly unlovely and saved us when we were utterly undeserving. And that should elicit our deepest gratitude as we see how marvelous God's grace really is. And then finally, an understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation helps us share the gospel with greater confidence. You know, one of the most common hindrances and hesitations that people have about embracing God's sovereignty is the fear that embracing God's sovereignty will lead us to neglect our mission of sharing the gospel with people. I mean, after all, if God's already chosen who's going to be saved and who's not, then why would we try to persuade people to be saved? 
mean, that would seem like a, a waste of time since everything's already determined anyway. And the extremely short answer to, to that, I wish I could give a longer one, but to condense it down a lot, is that God has issued a sovereign decree not only of who will be saved, but also about the way in which they will come to salvation, which is through Christians sharing the gospel with them. So God has decreed not only the end, but also the means by which that end will be accomplished. So that's why we share the gospel. Well, you might say that God has both a chosen people, you know, the people he's going to save, as well as a chosen plan for bringing them to faith. And as Christians, we are a part of God's chosen plan to bring his chosen people to salvation. And since we have no idea whom God has chosen and who he hasn't, we share the gospel with everyone. So that's the, the very short answer. And so God's sovereignty and salvation shouldn't be a deterrent from sharing the gospel. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite. God's sovereignty should actually be an encouragement for us to share the gospel with confidence. We can share the gospel with the confidence that God will indeed draw his chosen people to himself and will lead them to respond positively to our message. So there's a level of success, you might say, that's in a sense guaranteed. Uh, we see this in Acts chapter 18. In this chapter, Paul's trying to spread the gospel in the city of Corinth and is facing some heavy opposition. And so to keep him from becoming discouraged, Jesus appears to Paul one night in a vision. And here's what he says, Acts 18, 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Did you hear that? That's God's sovereignty. <laughs> I have many in this city who are my people. So understand like, what just happened there. Jesus actually used the truth of his sovereignty not to deter Paul from evangelism, but actually to encourage him to continue evangelizing. Right? He basically guaranteed Paul a certain level of success. So as you embrace what the Bible says about God's sovereignty, you should be equipped to share the gospel with even greater enthusiasm and confidence. And on that note, if you are here this morning and haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, I would like to invite you to do so, even this very day. It would be a grave mistake to come away from the, the truths we've looked at this morning with some kind of a fatalistic attitude about your own salvation. Remember the twin truths that we talked about. Not only is God sovereign, but he'll also hold people, and yes, you, responsible for whether or not you turn to Jesus. He'll hold you responsible for your decisions. And rightly so. 
So if you'll allow me to be totally blunt, that means if you reject Jesus, then you will be sent to hell. And it'll be nobody's fault but your own. Thankfully, though, the God we serve is a God of mercy. And he gives an open invitation to anybody who desires to be saved from their sins and from the punishment that their sins deserve. As we've already seen in Romans 10, 13, right? Paul states clearly that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is really good news for sinners like you and me, right? Because this invitation is for us, regardless of who you are, what you've done. This invitation, dear friend, it's for you. So take your focus off of God's role and, and focus on your role. Your role is to put your trust in Jesus. Jesus loved you so much that he came to this earth to die on the cross to pay for your sins. He stood in your place. He acted as your substitute so that you would never have to face God's judgment. And then three days later, he resurrected from the dead triumphing over sin and death once and for all. And he now stands ready with his arms wide open to save you, to rescue you. And he invites you to turn to him for that. So don't give yourself a headache wondering and worrying about whether God's chosen you or not. That's just ridiculous. That's, that's silliness. Just receive the gift of of salvation. That's the only thing you would need to hear. As if you're not a Christian yet, that's the only thing you need to hear. Receive the gift of salvation that he offers you. And then, in, in the future, looking back, you'll know that you are among those whom God has chosen.